All right. Well, today I welcome Aaron Gunn to our show. On July 1st, Aaron announced his official exploratory committee for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. Aaron is our third guest on Coastal Front's election series, looking to become the next alternative to John Horgan. Aaron, as a local Victoria boy, earned his business degree at UVic, just like myself. And as an independent journalist, he is an activist for taxpayers and common sense. And Aaron has an impressive social media following. He has 8,000 followers on Twitter, 70,000 followers on Facebook, and over 50 million views on YouTube. As producer and director of the online hit series, Politics Explained, Aaron videos have targeted ICBC, Victoria's mayor, Lisa Helps, Canada's justice system, and the massive deficits run up by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I think we're gonna get along on that topic if we get into that. <laughs> His resume includes serving three years in the Canadian Army Reserves, working for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and being the founder and executive director of an initiative known as Generation Screwed. To help our listeners follow along, we're going to give Aaron the opportunity to tell us who he is and why he's potentially running. Then we'll jump into a series of questions surrounding specific policies and ideologies impacting our province today. Aaron, thanks for being on the show. It's great to be here, Andrew, and really looking forward to uh, having this conversation and, and telling your listeners about uh, who I am. Yeah, great. Well, as we discussed before we started recording, we have had Val come in first, then Gavin, um, and now yourself. And you are not officially a candidate yet, is that correct? That's correct. So we have an official exploratory committee. We're examining the, the, the landscape. We're making sure we've got all our T's crossed and I's dotted. Uh, but it's something that I'm definitely leaning towards, and I want to see a real alternative in British Columbia uh, when voters go to the go to the polls. And uh, so far, I haven't really seen it, so I think it's something we're likely to do. But we're still in the exploratory phase at this point. Okay, so for those listeners uh, to understand, we're gonna we're gonna discuss all of this under the context that you are running for the mm -hmm. BC Liberal leadership um, position, even though you're not officially there right now because maybe by the time this gets produced, you would be. So I want to just make sure everybody understands these questions can be posed in the way as though you were running for that, okay? So let me start before we get into those questions. Uh, and we are going to cover uh, the same as we've done with both Val and Gavin. Uh, responsible spending, childcare, rising taxes, housing affordability, opioid crisis, the environment, and cannabis. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, let's hear a bit about who is Aaron Gunn. Well, as you mentioned in your intro, I'm a Victoria boy, went to UVic, uh, was in the Army Reserves, joined the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, my big thing is, is um, you know, I, I grew up, uh, was going to get into business, started my first business when I was 15 years old, but I've been just so disappointed by the direction of this country and this province. It's why I started working with the Taxpayers Federation, then went over to Canada Proud and now built my own personal brand uh, that you alluded to. So I think I'm somebody who, who, who doesn't back down. Um, and uh, I've, other people have called, called me defiant. But at the end of the day, I just want to have an open and honest debate about some of these issues. And um, I think our country and our province has been headed in the wrong direction. And, and the other thing is I just think that voters deserve a real choice when they go to the polls. And I feel like they haven't had that recently. Okay. Uh, so that's a good intro. Let's maybe talk a bit about your experience with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Mm -hmm. It's, by the name itself, it sounds pretty obvious what it is, but maybe just highlight quickly, what is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and what did you do while you were there? How did it change who you are today? Yeah, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is really an incredible organization. It is a, um, 
is a group of people spread out all across the country that are dedicated for fighting for lower spending, um, more responsible government and less government waste. Uh, they also talk about other issues like debt and deficits. And uh, so they're in the media a lot. They're one of the most um, kind of clipped organizations in the country. Uh, you see them pushing back when whenever politicians try to raise taxes, when they're racking up massive debt clocks. One of the, my favorite things when I worked there was they had a debt clock that they towed and traveled across the country to show the debt spinning up in real time, just making that issue that much more visual for Canadians. And when I was there, the number one thing that I definitely learned was how to communicate to Canadians in a straightforward, common sense way that they could easily understand to try to break down these complex issues like government debt, for example, in a way that's digestible and a way that people can 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 fully uh, appreciate um, and understand so that we have a more educated electorate. OK, good. Well, that'll be a really good topic that we're going to get into under uh, responsible spending. What about Generation Screwed or the Generation Screwed initiative? What is that? So the Generation Screwed Initiative was something that I started uh, under the tent of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So it was while I was there, okay. and it was the purpose of it was to raise awareness uh, of young people specifically and students across the country of the massive debt burden that was being left to them, that was being left to their generation. So we started obviously at nothing. We ended up growing. We're on 30 campuses across the country by the, by the time I left uh, three and a half years later. And um, I think it was successful. We would we would table at university campuses. A lot of students would would stop and be like, "What's this generation screwed thing about?" And we explained it to them. And I think a lot of people were taken by surprise. They didn't realize just how much debt was being left uh, to them by the generation coming before them, as well as unfunded liabilities, which we can also get into to after you look at healthcare, some of the pensions, um, and with our aging population and all that kind of stuff. So just explaining that to them, getting them involved, and trying to make an issue that to be honest is is not the sexiest issue it can be a little bit dry and trying to bring that to life so uh, i think we were very successful we also toured the deck clock around on university campuses and uh, held large events called action forums across across the country and just tried to bring awareness uh how this ever increasing size of government especially when we're not paying for it is is not helping young people as is often portrayed uh, in the media or by certain politicians, but is actually going to be a detriment and a drag on their future. Okay. So is that a Generation Screwed initiative still running today under the Canadian Taxpayer Association? It is still running. Yeah, I, I believe it's still up at generationscrewed.ca. I haven't, uh, when did I leave the CTF? Maybe four years ago. Okay. So, but I believe it's still running. I'm yeah. sure it's changed. What, what uh, drove you to leave? Like, well, where did you go from there? Before we get into some of these initiatives, where did you go after? That is a very interesting question. So, at that point, uh, I'd done the political thing and I wanted to go back into the private sector. I had a business idea. This is, I don't want to get go down uh, all these rabbit holes, but I had a business idea. We left. And as soon as I left, somebody reached out from an organization called Canada Proud, which is Canada's and that network of pages is Canada's largest kind of network of Facebook pages. And the right leaning movement in Canada is pretty small. And he said that, you know, someone referred said that you'd be really good for this. We're looking for someone to make videos that we can share. Uh, you, whatever's on your mind, just rant. Uh, you give us two minutes, three minutes, and um, we'll share it and we'll pay a little bit of money. And I said, well, this is great. I'm going to start this business and on the side, I'll just do this. I'm ranting anyways. I might as well <laughs> find a way to monetize it and uh, reach as many people as possible. 
and it just absolutely took off. That was in the summer of 2017. It, it was literally supposed to be the odd video every month and it just exploded. And um, we started racking up the millions of views and, and first it was on ICBC, then things like the tearing down of the McDonald's statue in Victoria, the tent cities, the gas prices, um, issue after issue, Trudeau's deficits, law and order. So it just kind of spun off from there. I was with Canada Proud until uh, the end of 2019, just after the federal election. And then I basically took the following that I had built and spun it off into my own brand and okay. um, have been doing similar things ever since. New documentary series, some other things, uh, but under now Aaron Gunn and no longer under uh, Canada Proud. I see. Is that your full-time gig at this point? Has it been up to this point? Yeah, so that's for the last... So under my own brand, it's been like that for the last, uh, since I guess January, 2020. Okay. Uh, and that's probably uh, too long to get into, but that is a, uh, there's a challenging industry to work in, to make work financially. But that was, you know, essentially running like my you own You make enough to business. pay the bills? Yeah. So that's, wow. that's uh, it's not, it's not always easy, but you find ways to do it and you're passionate about it. When we did things like politics explained, you know, we're traveling all across the country. So you got to find ways to fund that and, and fundraise and build a network of supporters. So you're really operating your own small business. You have to invest right. in you equipment. sell T-shirts. We don't sell, although in the next couple of weeks we do actually. So uh, <laughs> that's a whole other thing we're setting Bugs up. Mugs and T-shirts. Mugs and T-shirts and, <laughs> and sponsorships and finding ways to work it. But, uh, yeah. you know, if you if you deliver like anything in business. If you deliver a good product, usually there's a way to monetize it. There's just a way to, to figure it out. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so you said a little bit earlier, Aaron, that you've, you're you considering moving into this role of uh, or running for the leadership role because you feel like voters need a, some better options in front of them. So you're kind of alluding to the BC Liberal Party because before you can run for premier, you got to win the leadership race. And so tell me, what do you feel is the shortfalls of the BC Liberal Party today? Well, I think during the last election, uh, the main choices for voters were basically the NDP and the NDP light. I don't think that there was a true alternative vision articulated for the province. I don't think there was any bold new ideas, and I don't think there was any uh, common sense. I think it's time for, for a new approach. I think it's time, and this is important, to stop capitulating on every single social, cultural, and economic issue. And it's time for somebody uh, who has the guts to, I think, speak the truth. Um, and I haven't, I haven't been seeing that, and I didn't see it in the last election. And I think British Columbians weren't, weren't served by our politicians for doing that. And for me, you know, I've been talking about a lot of these issues from the sidelines, or it feels like the sidelines for the past couple of years. And I'm tired of watching what I perceive to be this province in this country kind of sleepwalk off a cliff. Okay. So in order to be able to have that dialogue to get yourself um, in that position, you've obviously got to become an official candidate. Um, there is a September 8th BC leadership debate that has been announced. Do you think you'll be able to get yourself, um, I don't know, it's called carded, approved? Well, I don't even know what the right terminology is, but will you be able to, will you be one of the people that you think you can get yourself in that position to be on that leadership debate on September 8th? It's pretty close. I will say that uh, I think if we want to be on that debate stage, we will be on that debate stage. But uh, we'll see. We've got we've got a good team of people around. We are weighing some strategic considerations. To be completely honest, I think there's going to be a federal election happening at that exact same time. So uh, I'm not sure how tuned in people will be. 
Um, and look, this is a outrageously long leadership race. The vote is in February. Yeah. Uh, normally these things go for, for four or five months from beginning. This thing was like eight months. So, um, and because I have the built-in following, I don't think I need as much runway as, as, as other candidates. So uh, we're going to make that consideration, but uh, we're going to get in. You can be sure that uh, assuming we do get in, we're going to be getting in with the strategy and, and timing is uh, obviously a major consideration. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Well, let's get into these various topics. We're going to start off by talking about one of my favorite ones, which is responsible spending. First question for you, where is this current provincial government when it comes to its spending and its over potentially overspending? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, you've seen that we lost our AAA uh, status from the credit ratings. Uh, it didn't take very long for the NDP to lose that. I've been concerned about, look, if you go back over the years, you go back over the decades, there is a consistent pattern. It's the steady increase in the size of government, and that's all come at the expense of individual taxpayers. Um, I think that's wrong. I think I think government doesn't need to be big. I think it is about the most, it is the least efficient deliverer of public services. And um, I think we should try to keep government uh, as small as reasonably possible. Obviously, there's a role for government and there's a role for delivering cer certain services. But um, I, I think we've been going in the wrong direction. As far as being responsible, uh, the BC Liberals did a pretty good job during their uh, tenure in office. There's still things where I think the debt continued to increase under the BC Liberals. They hid some of that uh, in the balance sheet, uh, under Crown Corporations, these kind of things. Ultimately, there's only one taxpayer. So if BC Hydro is racking up debt or ICBC is racking up debt, there's still only one taxpayer that's basically underwriting it all. Uh, I do think that when it comes to responsible spending, uh, I know this isn't the focus of the interview, but it's really the federal government that has been completely out of control and um, I think they've discovered that they can basically print money. And once they've discovered that, they've realized there's not a lot of political downside between borrowing $200 billion or borrowing $300 billion or borrowing $350 billion. And uh, I think that's a very kind of dangerous road that we're, that we're currently on. Well, I completely agree. And I'd love to have a conversation about that. But you're right. This is not what this is about. But um, maybe, maybe another time we yeah. can chat about that. Um, let's talk about an article from the Vancouver Sun that was published highlighting all of the public servants in British Columbia mm -hmm. who make over $75,000 a year. This is a uh, summary from the Vancouver Sun of the BC government's annual report. They highlighted things like the BCI, which used to be BC Investment Management, uh, BCIMC, BC Investment Management Corporation, CEO making over $3 million. 48 people in Victoria who make over half a million dollars a year as bureaucrats. And 3,800 public sector employees that make more than John Horgan makes, the premier. Would you support an audit of the BC public service payroll? 100%. I think that, I mean, there's others that you didn't mention there, like the head of ICBC and TransLink and some of these other, uh, other organizations that are, that, are, that are tied to government. Um, I do think the bigger issue, though, underpinning this all is the idea of how how large should our government be? And right now, I think with the NDP in Victoria, they believe, you see, they've, they've hired thousands of more people. And, um, you know, they want the government to take a ever-increasing role in the individual life of British Columbians. And I don't think that's the direction that we should be going. And invariably, you're going to see those costs continue to increase. The bureaucracy get bigger and bigger, more inefficient. And um, so I think we've seen that and we're going to continue and we're continuing to head in that direction. You've seen what it has done in other provinces, whether it's Ontario or Quebec as well, 
And um, you just keep having this more, this increasingly bloated public service, uh, whether it's like, as you kind of pointed out and alluded to inflated public salaries, or in general, just these kind of make work jobs that invariably exist. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it just uh, doesn't stop. I mean, you're absolutely right, Aaron. I mean, in fact, if we pull the stats, um, if you look at the BC, uh, sorry, if you look at Can Stats Canada's latest job details, um, what's interesting is if you drill down to regions, the CRD, so the Victoria region, has a lower unemployment rate than Metro Vancouver. Now, where do you think most of the jobs in this province are? They're not in Victoria. So why would they have a lower unemployment rate? It's because if you also look at the actual number of increase in jobs, the public service sector is the one that's had the most amount of increases. In fact, if you take those out of the equation, BC's unemployment rate would be far higher because there's all these jobs being created. So I fully, fully uh, support your comments there. Um, what about getting to a balanced budget? Or is generational debt just a new reality that we all have to live with? Yeah, I definitely think we need to get to a balanced budget. I do not subscribe to this new modern monetary theory, which thinks that we can basically print money in perpetuity uh, in seemingly endless amounts without consequence. I think eventually the bill will come, will come due. I think we need to stop mortgaging the future of the next generation. And uh, we start. We have to start living within our means. I know that's a value that's been passed down uh, to me from my family, and I think that it's a good value to have. And I think invariably, and it's unfortunate, but we keep having to relearn the same lessons in our society over and over again. We've been down this road before. We saw what happened in the 70s and the 80s, um, started by just, uh, Pierre Trudeau, um, and it led to a huge fiscal crunch in the 90s, which put our country in a real dangerous fiscal situation. And right now we're on seemingly on cruise control heading to the exact same spot. So I think we have to do everything we can, especially also in the province from a provincial level, we can't even print money. So we're going to be stuck with that debt one way or another. You see what's happening with Newfoundland. They're basically going uh, bankrupt. So um, yeah, it, it, it really does concern me. I think it has to be a priority uh, of any government to, again, live within your means. I think most voters understand this. And as you highlighted, we just lost our AAA credit rating by Standard & Poor's. Mm -hmm. So there's four major credit rating agencies in North America. And uh, one downgrade happened by Fitch, which was about a month ago. But the big one was the S&P one. And what was interesting, and you may not know this, this is the world I live in, so I know it very well. We had that credit rating for 14 years. In fact, it was uh, upgraded from a AA plus to AAA uh, in 2007 under Premier... Uh, Gordon Campbell. And it took us 14 years to get there. Now, what was interesting is BC's had a AAA credit rating once before. It happened in 1980. And it was dropped in 1983. It went from AAA to AA plus like we just had. And it took 24 years to get back there. So it took the very, very beginning. We go back to the very beginning of credit rating uh, of BC's credit rating. It started in, the 19, in 1965. And it went from 1965 all the way until uh, 19... Uh, 80. So it took 14 years to get the first AAA credit rating, three years, and then we lost it. It took another 14 years to get it back. Sorry, 24 years to get it back. We had it for 14 years. And now we're out without a AAA credit rating. And I think the listeners listening to the show know what that means. It means a higher cost of borrowing for this province. The cost is going to get larger, probably because it's unlikely that this is our last credit rating uh, cut mm -hmm. or decline. Because historically, credit rating agencies don't do cut rates, rate cut just once. Mm -hmm. They typically do it in a two-step fashion. So I, I, I echo that comment as well. 
This leads us into taxes, okay? So the only way you can really get yourself um, into a better situation short-term when you have a ratings cut, because now your cost of borrowing debt is higher, is you either have to have some austerity and tighten your spending, or you just start taxing your citizens more. Mm -hmm. But that can only go for so long. So we wanna talk about taxes. Uh, we need significant policy changes. We wanna attract new tech companies and encourage entrepreneurship. Currently, the business tax rate in BC jumps from 2% to 12% when a company's revenues reach over $500,000 a year. What are some of the creative ideas, new, use the word new bold ideas, you would bring to BC in order to attract investment into areas like tech? Well, I think a couple things. Number one, uh, more broad, broadly speaking about tech, I don't think the government should be picking winners and losers in the economy. And I think that would apply to businesses and also fields of business. Uh, I know it's a little bit of a segue, but you brought up tech. I just finished touring uh, Alberta's oil sands. I've done a video on, on forestry. The truth is that we also have a lot of high tech that's built into our other industries. Our natural gas industry is very high tech. The technology that they use is very high tech. So first thing I want just to lay out is that is, is, is you can view technology as a lot more than, than your... Uh, than your Twitters and your Facebooks and your Microsofts and things like that. Um, the second thing, as far as business policy, as far as corporate tax rates go, I think the number one thing is to remain competitive with your neighbors. So we got to keep an eye on what's happening in Washington state. We have to keep an eye on what's happening in Alberta uh, and across the country. And you have to remain internationally competitive on the personal tax side. Cause I think that is one of the things that really drives entrepreneurship I think it's important to push for lower, flatter taxes. This is something that's become seemingly all politicians are scared to bring it up or scared to say it. But at the end of the end of the day, I do not think we should be punishing or disincentivizing success or disincentivizing wealth creation. And that's what I think some of these outrageous tax rates do. You see people paying sometimes over 50% in their income tax. And I think that is a huge mental barrier. And I think, um, you know, it's the message they're obviously... Uh, the NDP do this a lot. They play the class warfare card. They've been doing it for 70 years. And um, I think that's 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 really disappointing. And that's that's really that's really bad to see. And I think that cultural thing will drive wealth uh, out of the province. OK, so be, you mentioned personal tax rates. I can relate to this because I have the fortune of being in the highest marginal tax rate. I was paying for many years, 48.9 percent tax. Uh, and in fact, um, there was a period right at the end of uh, Christy Clark's era where they made a policy that if they had achieved three years or two years of surpluses, they would lower the highest marginal tax rate, and they did that. And then the BCNDP government came in, and they increased it. And so the first time in my working career, and I've been in the highest marginal tax rate for a better part of over a decade, I now pay 53.5% tax in, in, in on my taxes. And I'll tell you what happened here in the day that that was announced, and it was about a year and a half ago. I picked up the phone after the announcement came out and I called my tax lawyer here in Vancouver, Tim Brown at RBS, by the way, there's a little plug for Tim. He's been on my podcast. He's phenomenal. And Tim's been trying to get me to implement a ton of different tax saving strategies, many of which are somewhat complex. These are not these are not tax evading strategies. They're not taking money offshore, but they're things you can do onshore in Canada, completely above board, legal, takes a bit of work, got to spend a bit of money, but in the end it saves even more. 
And I said, Tim, I'm paying over 50 cents in the dollar now on my taxes. It's unjust. Pull them all out. Let's dust them all off. Let's get them going. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one because I got calls as a financial advisor. I got calls for weeks after that from my clients saying, how do I get my tax rate below 50% again? And the reality is for most of them, the answer is you, there's not much you can do unless you move to different jurisdiction. So would you change the personal income tax rate for the highest earners in this province so that they would be paying less than 50%? Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, you have to obviously balance the budget first, I think. But in general, we need to decrease the size of government and we need to have lower, flatter taxes. I was a big fan I'm not sure how practical it is now of having uh, the Alberta flat tax, which which existed for many years. Um, now, of course, you've got those increases that you talked about. Part of it was provincial. Part of it was also federal. So uh, you you obviously have yeah. no control over that aspect of it. But I do think there is a control. There is. I mean, they have raised taxes here in British Columbia. So I think that that is negative. And it also uh, you mentioned your point about moving jurisdictions. There are people who have are living in BC by choice and they also have places in Arizona. And there's a certain point where people are going to say, you know, screw this. I'm going back to my, my place in Arizona. And if they don't want my uh, money, they're going to treat me like a criminal. Basically, I'm going to go somewhere else. So I think you're going to see that. And, uh, you know, eventually that old quote by Margaret Thatcher, eventually the government runs out of other people's money. And I think uh, that's what we're starting to see happen with the NDP. And I imagine that's going to keep happening. You know, the 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 wealthy are not a a. Uh, endless well that can just keep delivering uh you know funds to to feed the utopian visions of the ndp i think we need realistic policy and we have to stop punishing wealth and job creators in this province okay so you mentioned earlier we talked about the uh the ratings cut from AAA. uh you talked about uh you've highlighted how you think we need to have smaller government um, cut back on our spending now selena robertson who's our minister of finance when that ratings cut was announced last week, uh, some of the BC Liberals in, that are in place today made some comments and she came out and responded and said, well, I didn't know that we should be cutting back on social services for British Columbians just to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, help um, appease a credit rating agency. How would you respond to something like that? Well, I think it's, I mean, that's what the NDP, they always present this false choice that it's always about cutting back in social services. And I think it's, it's, it's twofold. One, it's about uh, leaving more money in the pockets of taxpayers, leaving more of their own money in the pockets of taxpayers, number one. And uh, I think number two, the fact is that there's a huge amount of waste in government that, that, that can be cut. It's not about cutting back social services. Uh, the NDP solution to every single problem is just pour more money into it. Oh, we're not having the healthcare outcomes that we want. Let's just pour more money into it. Oh, we don't have the education outcomes we want. Let's just pour more money into it. No business owner like that exactly exactly and uh, to be honest i think the government is always a little bit destined uh to operate in that fashion which is a, why i believe in smaller government and why we should look for solutions outside of government as often and wherever is possible would you support the comment that the government already has enough money they just got to be better with what would they do with it uh not really because i would say that the government has too much money i think people <laughs> are overtaxing i think british Columbians are overtaxed i think the vast majority of canadians are overtaxed and I think we should find uh, creative ways to to um, uh, return as much of that as possible to taxpayers. Okay. Before we get into the next, I want to finish off on this flat tax idea. Can you just, in layman's terms, for our listeners, explain what your policy would be around a flat tax initiative? 
Well, I think, I mean, obviously these are early days. We don't have, uh, not even officially in, in the race yet, but what I always say is I like, I support lower flatter taxes. The Alberta flat tax, which was kind of the standard, uh, was that you didn't penalize wealth creators. So of course, people who were wealthier paid more in tax than people who were less wealthy, but they didn't pay a, a they weren't penalized for creating wealth and, and creating jobs in the sense that if you were making $300,000 a year, you were paying uh, 40% of your taxes. And if you were paying $100,000 a year, you were paying 40% of your taxes. Obviously, those numbers are dramatically different. Obviously, you have a a certain amount that you make tax-free because that uh, whatever it's the the deductible amount yeah. or whatever um, but beyond a certain point you had a flat tax because why would you penalize the gen the generation of income which is something that you should actually be trying to encourage in society the creation of that kind of wealth the when it, the jobs that come along with that and the prosperity that comes along with that so most of our listeners are going to be income earners that are probably north of 80 grand a year. Many of them are probably going to be in, a, in the low six-figure category. What would you want to see a flat tax be for someone, say a, a couple, a working couple, so they both work, two kids making combined taxable income of uh, $170,000 a year? That's getting into pretty detailed uh, policy questions for, for this early on. But what I will say is the Alberta flat tax was 10% at a provincial level. Again, you don't have any control over what the federal government is doing. Uh -huh. um, now, Alberta's got uh, you know a special amount of resource wealth. I'm not sure if that would be possible, but I think a provincial rate uh, closer to 12, 13%. I, this is something that we'd have to look at. Sure. Um, but you know, the Alberta flat tax was 10%. I think that was great for that province. It's unfortunate that they got rid of it. Um, and I think, you know, something, and again, it might not be perfectly flat, but the idea of having lower, flatter taxes is a position that I find almost nobody is willing to, to take anymore and articulate, but I'm happy to do it because I think entrepreneurialism and, and technological development and wealth creation are things that need to be encouraged in society and incentivized in society, not punished um, and certainly not disincentivized, which is what seems to be happening now. Well, it is disincentivized as soon as you start going above 50%. Mm. It all of a sudden makes people like myself, and I'll speak to myself because I'm in this camp, go from thinking about how am I going to create more wealth to how am I going to protect the wealth that I'm creating now from being by, by, by from, from the government taking mm. more out of my pocket. And the part that just perplexes me, Aaron, is if I have a new creative idea that I'm willing to take my own capital and my own risk on to go down, let's say I got a new new business idea. You had a business idea, right? Imagine you, you have this business idea. It's going to cost you $100,000. You're going to borrow the money from the bank. You take on all the risk. If it fails, you know, people say, oh, you got a tax deduction. Well, tax deductions only work against taxable gains. Mm -hmm. So if I put hundred grand down on a new idea and it fails, I've got $100,000 that I can apply against a future gain at some point in the future with no guarantees of any future gains. But if I succeed, so I'm paying, I'm paying that out of my own pocket with no upfront, no, I get no tax benefit from that. I'm out a hundred grand, mm -hmm. but if I put a hundred grand in and I make a hundred grand, I got to give 53 and a half thousand of that to the government. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem right to me. Well, I agree. I agree. And like you said, it, it, um, unless people are going to take those risks and those are the risks that create businesses that create wealth and then create jobs. So we should actually be encouraging people to go out and start businesses to take risks. I think then, and that's the opposite of what the current tax policy in this province is, is achieving. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're on the same page on that. Let's jump to health, uh, to childcare, excuse me. Mm -hmm. 
So childcare is a big focus in BC. Both Trudeau and Horgan announced plans for Ottawa and the province to work to achieve $10 per day childcare before 2027. This $10 a day childcare was a big part of the election campaign for the Horgan government in the last election. First of all, can you explain to the listeners what the heck $10 a day childcare is? Uh, I mean, it sounds pretty self-explanatory to me in that I guess they're trying to guarantee childcare spaces at $10 a day. I know in Quebec they have something somewhat similar. Uh, childcare is another uh, policy area that I've talked less about up until this point, but I'll just say this because I remember this debate, and this is a debate that's been going on for, for I remember it going on 15, 20 years ago. Um, what I do not think the solution is, is another one-size-fits-all government bureaucracy uh, to deliver yet and infringe on another part of the lives of families and the lives of individuals. You see this from the left over and over again in an attempt to, in my opinion, socially engineer and reward some families and not others. What I think is if you have a situation, I think it's, I think it's fair to say families are struggling with, with the cost, the cost of living here in British Columbia. Childcare is one of those things. It's not the only thing. Uh, I think you should give the money directly to parents and let them make their own decisions. These, is it, why we keep treating parents like children in this, in this province, in this country, I don't understand. So for me, whether that's direct payments, whether it's something like a childcare voucher, but I think it's better to, for, for the government to step in on that end instead of creating this other kind of bureaucratic entanglement that I'm sure will be delivered inefficiently and will result in even more and, and waste of taxpayer money, which of course is higher taxes. And, um, you know, it's, it reminds me of the free healthcare debate. It's $10 a day daycare. There's not, they're not making daycare cheaper. They're just trying to redistribute the, the wealth through some kind of horrifically inefficient government scheme. And um, that's what I invariably think will, will happen. Okay. Can you speak to the reality of what it's like to attain childcare in the province today? Well, I have no children, so I can't speak directly to it. But I, I have friends with many people who, uh, who, are, who are new parents who are going through this. And it's obviously a challenge. I mean, we can get into, I think there's some deeper problems in our, in our economy with, with a skills mismatch and a jobs mismatch, which probably goes back to our higher education policy and the, and the kinds of careers we're choosing to subsidize. But um, aside from that, I do think, like whenever you have supply and demand issues, um, you know, the free, the idea that a centralized approach by government would help supply and demand issues sort themselves out, I think is, is, has been proven false over and over again. Um, so I think the, the main thing that you can do is help support parents who I think do need the support in that stage of their lives because they're dealing with not only childcare, but the price of housing, the price of gas, the price of auto insurance, the price of groceries, the list goes on and on. And, uh, but I think the best way to do that isn't to create some other arm of government or some other convoluted government scheme is to put money directly into their pockets, or actually, to be honest, it's to allow them to keep more of their money, uh, directly into their pockets. Um, or possibly I wouldn't be completely opposed to some kind of childcare voucher, uh, system, but 100% opposed to any kind of public, you know, provincially run or nationally run childcare system, which of course is something that's, that's been proposed. Okay. Okay. To finish off on this, um, we've been spending our time talking mostly about families who need financial support to be able to pay for childcare. But I'll tell you here in Metro Vancouver, I got a lot of people who work for me mm -hmm. who have young children. They have the financial resources to hire, to put their kids in daycare, mm -hmm. childcare. They just can't get it. They can't find it because what we've heard is that 
from what I've been hearing from a lot of parents is a lot of these childcare providers just can't get the licensing approvals to expand their operations or they get delayed because the wall was painted pink and it should be painted white or something like this. So what do you, how do you respond? Like, how would you, as the head of the liberal party of BC, if you were to run down that path, how would you adjust things to allow even those parents who can afford it, but just there's not even available to them? How would you, uh, you know, what policies would you put in place to make it even available to them? Well, Andrew, it sounds like with so many things in our society, it's not uh, government the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. So, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me at all that there's, and I've heard about this, that there's these regulatory hoops. Um, some that were put there maybe are good and a lot of them probably not so good. And uh, those need to be streamlined because we need, as you said, uh, there's one thing to, to help parents out. The other thing is you have to make sure supply is there. And that's what you were obviously alluding to. Mm -hmm. And, um, but look, the economy, as, as you know, will, will respond to demand. So as long as you make it easy and streamlined enough for, for private businesses to childcare businesses to be set up, I'm sure they will, they will fill the, fill the demand. If there's money to be, if there's people willing to spend money, the market should reply unless government's getting in the way with, with dumb regulation. It's probably the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well said. Okay. We're going to jump to housing mm -hmm. and affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Okay. There was a recent uh, survey that was done here in British Columbia a majority of the British Columbians that responded to the survey uh, stated that they believe housing interventions through taxations are just not an, an effective way of improving affordability. It's not working. Define, first of all, for the listeners, what you see as affordable housing, because it gets tossed around a lot, but we need to start by understanding what do you say, like, what is, what is affordable housing? Affordable housing for me is people that are born here or were raised here who work hard, follow the law and pay their taxes, being able to afford homes in the cities that they grew up in. That to me is, is affordable housing. I think we're, we're losing that in, in cities like Vancouver and Victoria, or we've already lost it in, in some cases. And, um, and I think it needs to be a priority of government. I think there's a lot of people in the political, especially the BC Liberal establishment, who wouldn't like me saying that, but I think the BC Liberals didn't do a good job on this file. I think you see the NDP struggling with it as well. Of course, there are demand side uh, concerns. Of course, there are supply side concerns. I think you need to do both. And the same way that the Bank of Canada obviously is supposed to be pursuing a policy to keep inflation at, at reasonable levels, I think for a lot of, especially young families, the price of housing, and that's a whole nother conversation, but the price of housing um, is something that, look, if you're like, like, look at speculation, for example, you're a money guy, um, went to school, commerce, finance, I've got no problem with people speculating on the stock market and, 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 and providing liquidity to the, the capital markets and things like that. But when it comes to housing, you're really starting to mess with people's lives and the ability of people to afford a home to raise a family in. So I do think the government has a role. Um, you also don't want to collapse the housing market because you have a whole bunch of people that have taken out mortgages and they're now their main source of savings and, and wealth. So I think the, the goal should be to, to make sure it's moderated and you don't have a situation that you have now where people are being priced out of the communities that they uh, grew up in. Okay, that's interesting. So if you look at the last two years of the BC Liberal Party's reign in government in British Columbia in the first year of the BC NDP, 
if you strip out the property transfer tax revenue line from the annual financials, uh, they all would have ran slight deficits. So that property transfer tax, and in fact, those last two years of the BC Liberal Party where they had, I think it was in the, their second to last year where they had this massive surplus was largely driven by, I think it was over $700 million just on property transfer taxes, which was driven by transfer of property. You don't collect that tax like realtors don't get paid their commission. The government doesn't get their tax unless property transfers over it changes hands. I've actually talked to David Eby about this. So I've made the argument that actually on the upper end of the uh, housing spectrum, so when you get into homes $5 million and above, shouldn't we actually be encouraging speculation? Because these aren't affordable homes. A $5 million house that drops by 50% in value is still $2.5 million, still not affordable. But the longer it stays in one's hands and doesn't turn over, means less tax collected. So isn't there a case to be made that some kind of speculation is actually a, a healthy part of the um, of the market? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, if you're talking at homes over $5 million, you're probably not talking about 99% of the uh, of British Columbians. Um, so it's an interesting thought. I have I definitely haven't considered that. I, do, I would wonder if maybe there there's um, if pushing those houses up further would also maybe drag other home values up uh, as well. But uh, it's something that that I hadn't thought about. But I do think in general, I mean, you made the point about the property transfer tax. I do think we have a, a situation where there's there's certain interest groups and certainly the government among them who who silently were were benefiting from these massive increases in price. Look, there's lots of British Columbians who own homes who have made huge windfalls as well uh, by the sale tax of free the, uh, tax free of the sale of the primary residence. So I think that I think that's that's indisputable. The problem is, is you have this next generation of people coming up who can't afford homes in the communities that they grew up in, or as we've seen, have taken on such massive levels of debt um, that we're running, we're playing a very dangerous game, I think, because you combine that with the debt being taken up by the government and these kind of what I would consider artificially low interest rates. Um, it's a little bit of a, of a tinderbox, I think. Um, and it's a risky situation uh, that we're playing. Obviously, we saw what happened in 2008 in the in the United States, and um, it's just a risky it's a risky proposition that I think that a lot of people have found themselves in. So you're not a big fan of large government. You're a big fan of small government. Yet it sounds like you one area you feel like government should intervene is in the world of speculation of of residential real estate. Have I got that right? So I'm very opposed to big government, government running anything. So large government, large budgets. As far as the regulatory state, I think the government should play, like that should be government's bread and butter. Is they should try to run as little as possible and instead set the rules for the private sector that are fair and are predictable and, and, and let the private sector deliver what it does best, which is like the allocation of resources in an efficient, as an efficient way as possible. I think that... Uh, so how would you regulate the speculation of residential real estate? Wouldn't, I mean, isn't a better way to handle that just to simply say, it's a supply and demand issue. There's rise, we, the demand for housing in this province is, and, this, and Metro Vancouver is so predictable. It, the numbers don't change much from year to year. I mean, Vancouver itself, Vancouver proper, has a net intake of about 40,000 new residents every single year. The problem is that the supply side isn't keeping up with the demand. That's the argument I would make as a you know, free market economist. So wouldn't it be better instead of trying to create rules and regulations around speculation, just simply say, let's just lift all the barriers to creating more supply and let the supply side catch up with the demand side? 
I think that's a big part of the solution, but I think it might take a while for the supply side to catch up it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, that's a whole other problem. I think one of the biggest things the provincial government needs to do is rein in some of these city councils that have been completely out of control that have overstepped their bounds. And um, I think because housing, for example, is a provincial issue, is a place where, where they could step in and say, um, you know, it's time for the time for the adults in the room uh, to make some decisions here. I know that. So you made a really good point. Let's talk about Vancouver. Okay. okay? Um, to get a house built in Vancouver right now, I'm talking residential build, you're looking at 12 to 18 months to get your building permit. Now, just to walk through that process, you acquire the piece of land, okay? Then you have to go through a, an entire process of design and build, like design work, right? You got to get the engineers, you got to get your designer, you got to get all, and you have to do it all within the regulations of the Vancouver Charter. And then you have to deliver a package to the city that is airtight, like lock, stock, and barrel. This thing cannot deviate at all, and it should be, all the boxes need to be checked. And from there, it then takes the city of Vancouver 12 to 18 months. Now, just to give you context, in Saanich, where I'm building a place right now, we got our approval for four different building permits on our property. We got it all done in six weeks. In Vancouver, it takes 12 to 18 months. So a lot of developers I've talked to in Vancouver, single-family home developers and ones who like to build these, um, these all-rental low-rise buildings, which apparently the left socialist governments of the city and the province want more built to be these to be built, mm. are saying, we're not going to build in Vancouver anymore. It takes us too long. These, so you're looking at 12 to 18 months for a residential single-family home approval. And if you get into the small, you know, four or five-story wood-framed buildings, those take up to six years from land acquisition to occupation. So how would you, if you became the leader of the BC Liberal Party and then you became premier, because that's ultimately where you're going if you do go down this path, Aaron, what would you do with these city councils? How would you get them in line? Well, city councils and cities in general are, are, are creatures of statute. So the provincial government has the ultimate authority. So I think there's ways that you can rewrite uh, some of the charters and the legislation. I mean, uh, this is again very early days, so this would be. I don't want to preempt myself. So we w we would have policy proposals uh, on this, but I think you know, thematically, the the point is reigning in the city councils, reigning in their power, and sidelining them. Uh, we've seen the NDP government do it. We've seen the NDP government sideline certain city councils. Now they're doing it for the wrong reasons and in the wrong places, but uh, the NDP government has shown that the, the provincial government has the power to do that. Uh, your point on supply is 100% well taken. You know, they built the Empire State Building in 18 months. I can't even imagine how long that would take to build in, in Vancouver today from the from the planning phase. It would never get built. It would probably <laughs> never get built. It'd be like the, the uh, Massey Tunnel. Yeah, exactly. It'd be <laughs> Which the, we're going to get into. Yeah, so um, I think, I so I agree with you 100%. Okay. Last question on this. What is your view on the current NDP housing policies and of those from the previous BC Liberal government, open an open sort of question there. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we, we need to, um, there's, there's, there's lots of factors why housing has increased. Part of it is just the secrets out the, the, of British Columbia. We have obviously a lot, a lot of net migration from other parts of the country. But uh, look, where there is money laundering, it needs to be clamped down on. There has to be absolutely uh, no room for it in the province. Uh, where there is illegal speculation or, or house flipping, I don't think that has a role. 
in our in our province either. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's going to be affected primarily by supply. Do you need to put some demand constraints on? I think not ideally, but maybe you do in the short term until supply has a chance to catch up. Okay, so on the demand side, um, the um, the BC NDP government suggested before they became government suggested that offshore money was a big factor in rising real estate prices, especially in Metro Vancouver. It's yet to be proven in my mind because they don't even actually have the data. Of course, that guy dives in another rabbit hole of like, should they have the right to collect all this data, which they are collecting now. How big of an impact do you think offshore money played in the rising house prices in the tail end of the BC Liberal uh, government's reign? I think it played a role. I think it's quite clear that it played a role. How big that role is 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 maybe a little bit harder to ascertain. Um, but as you as you pointed out, it's it's supply and demand. So obviously, if there's foreign money coming in, uh, if there's money laundering happening, especially on the the higher end homes, uh, that's going to make a difference. Um, there's also a lot of people uh, moving here right now from from within Canada and from outside the country. I think you said forty thousand people. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna play a role, especially if you're in a situation where supply, because of constraints put by government, are is unable to uh, to catch up as quickly. So uh, that gets into a whole another another can of worms that's that's mainly federal. But sure. um, yeah, but at the end of the day, I think look, I, what, I think demand and supply has to be balanced. I think in a, in a perfect world, you do that by by shaking off some of the constraints of supply. Um, I think that can primarily be accomplished. Do you need constraints on demand temporarily? Possibly, but I think ideally you free up you, you free up the private sector to do what it, it does best. Common sense regulations, of course, suffocating regulations that are leading to tens of thousands of dollars costs onto new to new homes uh, that are delaying them by weeks, months, sometimes years, as you pointed out, those have to go. Okay. This is probably more of a federal item, but last question for you on this is, do you support the New Zealand model where foreigners are banned from acquiring real estate? I, uh, I think this is a, when, when, it, when it comes to um, foreign ownership of real estate, this is something, uh, I'll just say this is something that we're looking at, we're examining. I prefer to open up supply rather than, than restrain demand. Uh, but I am open to the I am open to the belief and the 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 concept that uh, when it comes to homes in British Columbia, when it comes to government policies in British Columbia, the people that should be getting put first are the, the hardworking taxpayers of this province. So if we can have more people, that's great. But if there's a situation that needs to be fixed, maybe it's just temporary. Uh, I would say I'm open to it, or I'm open to any policy really. Okay, good. Okay, take a drink of water. We're going to move on to healthcare and opioid crisis. The BC Coroner Service reported 160 overdose deaths in the month of May alone. We have now had a total of 851 deaths so far this year, and we're only halfway through the year. What is your position on the decriminalization of illicit drugs? I think it's a terrible policy. I think people need help, not heroin. I think, look, in 20 years ago, uh, this new consensus on so-called harm reduction was introduced. At that time, about 150 people were overdosing uh, every single year. Every single death is a terrible tragedy. 
uh, when it comes from something as preventable as, as opioid overdose. Fast forward 20 years later, after all of the lofty rhetoric, after all of these safe injection sites, and we now have 1,700 deaths last year. Uh, there are a multitude of reasons why this is happening. But I think ultimately, uh, the policies that have been introduced over the last 20 years have failed spectacularly. Honestly, if this is success, I have no idea what failure would look like. <laughs> and what I hear from politicians is that we need more of the same or we haven't gone as progressive enough. We saw a city councillor in Vancouver handing out uh, crystal meth, heroin, and cocaine for free the other day uh, outside of a Vancouver police station. I'm not Gene sure if you saw there, So and I think it's been crazy. And I, and I hear this ideological uh, approach that we need to destigmatize drug use. And I, and I say, from my experience, uh, you know, drugs are stigma. Societies, families, people stigmatize things for a reason. Like we stigmatize things that are, that are, that are bad and dangerous and, and unhelpful. And heroin definitely falls into that category. So I do not think we should be trying to normalize hard drug use like heroin. Um, I think it's, I, I feel like the results have been obvious. And one of the things that I worry about, and this is something as far as I know, maybe someone else coined it, but what I feel like we have in Van Vancouver, we have in Victoria is a poverty industrial complex. That's what I call it. Where you have this billion dollar industry of people who basically make a living on the perpetuation of this problem where we're just going to warehouse addicts and we've, we've somehow reached. You think these people are actually enticed, enticed to actually keep people in poverty and on drugs. I think they have a vested interest in doing it. How's that? I mean, the people running the, the people that running all these programs, like the, the amount of money the provincial government is spending every single year on these programs is, is to, uh, is based on the problem perpetuating if the problem is solved uh look the, the situation of we should be focusing all of our resources and all of the government's resources on getting these people clean getting them back into society and making them productive members and taxpaying members of our society again just this is just a solution of just handing out heroin in perpetuity to people and saying like this is their this as if that is their you know in uh they're in some state that can't be changed and we're just go the treatment for it is to continue to give them heroin and spend tens of thousands of dollars every year in various amounts of government support uh which invariably gets funneled through all sorts of different companies and nonprofits. some of which you're talking about public servants getting paid hundreds of thousands you should see some of the people running these so-called nonprofits, absolutely massive salaries here and we're just warehousing these addicts i think it is the worst of all worlds it's bad for the addicts it's bad for the government and it's bad for the communities that have to live with the degradation of their neighborhoods and the increases in crime and you've seen that in yale town you've seen it uh you know this ties into some of the tent cities and stuff like that so i really think this is a policy that hasn't been working i feel like most people are are are, are scared to point that out and to say maybe it's time for a new approach and you know what maybe the fact that vancouver was at the vanguard of this harm reduction policy and now is at the vanguard of overdose deaths in all of North America should maybe be a wake-up call that we should be going in a different direction. And I, I, don't know, I don't know what has to happen for people to reflect back and say, maybe this hasn't worked. Okay, well, you sell, sound pretty passionate about this, Aaron. So let's spend a little bit more time on this topic. Uh, my in-laws and my wife and my brother-in-law all spent some time together recently, and they all live in Saanich. And, uh, and my brother-in-law happens to be a firefighter in Saanich. And he actually said to me, I'm really glad I'm not a firefighter in the Victoria um, department right now. Mm -hmm. 
And he said, because the amount of calls they have to attend to now and the risks that they have to put themselves and invariably their families through because of themselves in treating and dealing with uh, homelessness and drug addicted individuals is insane. He said, basically, that's all they do. They go to their shift. He goes, I go to my shift in Saanich and a, a, most good nights, I get a full night's sleep. If I'm in Victoria and it's a night shift, I'm working all night. So apparently there's a real issue here. You can probably understand this because you live there. You live right in Victoria. So how would you, if you were ultimately premier of this province, deal with this kind of thing? How would you f do it differently? What are some of the things you would implement today that would make a change so that we don't have firefighters and first responders having to just triage people, shift in, shift out, burning out, and um, having this, uh, invariably this, this problem that just keeps, keeps growing, both in the downtown east side and in the, uh, was it Pandora? Is that what the area? Pandora Avenue. I lived Pandora. on Pandora Avenue while I was going to university, and I saw this problem grow out of control while I was living there. Obviously, a lot of the people living in Vancouver are familiar with the downtown east side. They've seen this before. You grew up in Victoria. Victoria was not like this. Mm -hmm. It is it is deteriorated rapidly. Um, it it's is, drastically different from when I was there 20 years ago. I drove by just a couple, dramatic, couple Pandora days. Avenue, the tent city stuff that happened. In, in, so how would you, you fix know, it, Aaron? What are you going to do? Well, I think there's a couple of steps. First of all, let's, I mean, you got to look at the problem and there's a couple different components of it. And I think you have to break it down and break out the different people. One, there are criminal elements that are interwoven into all of these tent cities or these, these, um, uh, not detox centers, the, the hotels that the government has gone around and bought that turn into almost you know, basically being run by criminal syndicates, these shelters, that's the word I was looking for. You have to separate the criminal element out of that. Uh, part of the problem there is we have an absolute uh, revolving door justice system right now. And you talk, you mentioned firefighters. I know some in Victoria. If you just talk to police officers, talk about jobs you wouldn't want to have right now. How about being a police officer? It's a, you get no respect. You get you get crapped on by everybody, no matter what you do. And it's an absolute revolving door. They don't even bother uh, arresting and charging people anymore because they know they're just going to be back onto the streets all over again. And you see that happening over and over again. And by the way, these criminals are the ones oftentimes preying on the true homeless people. Getting into the homeless people, one of the big problems obviously uh, is mental illness, but I'd like separating this out from mental illness, like schizophrenia and stuff, and, and addiction and the drugs, and let's get to that in a second. On the mental illness, you know, these people are sick. If anybody else is sick, you go to a hospital, you're gonna get better here. It's something that everybody in British Columbia agrees with. So why are we letting these people languish on the streets, that's not good for them. It's not good for us. Not good for businesses. It's not good. These people need to be put in a place where they can get help. Hopefully, get better, but at the very least, live a better life for what they're doing now. I mean, I mean, it's, it honestly seems like when I look at this and I think of the Venn diagram, the worst possible solution we have somehow able to, to, to find ourselves in. Where you have these people, I'm sure you've walked by them down here where you're like, okay, this person being out on the streets is helping nobody. Like it is not helping the businesses, not helping tourism, but most importantly, it's not helping them. It's not helping their families and their friends, which they invariably have. So I think there's that on the addiction side. And I do think this is a whole nother conversation. I do not think homelessness is a huge problem in British Columbia. I think drug and drug addiction is a huge problem and it is the root of the vast majority of these issues. We have to try, the focus of the government should not be 
helping these people get their next fix or a cleaner fix or a marginally more safe fix. It is to get them clean and to get them off drugs and return them to being productive members of society, not just for us, not just for taxpayers, but for them. And in most cases, the people that are also suffering, their friends and their family. I know if, if people talk to me about this. I know if it was my friend or it was my sister or if it was my kids in the future that I'll invariably have. And, and they, God forbid, something happened there in this situation. I wouldn't want the government to give them heroin or give them crystal meth or enable this problem. I would want them to get help. And, and I think that that is what we should do. And I think we have to reorient our system. And I think that it, that is a that is a. But what does that include? When you say get give them help, like what what would you do differently than this continued failed policy? Because I agree, it's it this it's clearly failed. Mm -hmm. If it was a success, we'd see the numbers declining, and the current BC NDP government can't really stand behind this. Like, well, the BC Liberals were in power for fourteen years because they've been in power now for three and a half themselves. But their pro their program, whatever they've been put in place, hasn't worked any better than the BC Liberal one before. So how would you do it different? When you say you're going to help these people, let's talk about the ones who are schizophrenic, the ones who are having mental health challenges. What would you do with those people? Well, the people that you mentioned schizophrenia, which is obviously a, a textbook, one of these mental illnesses. Yeah. We need to reopen, and we closed a lot of them. And some of that's on the BC Liberals. Some of it happened before the mental hospitals that were closed. I mean, you know, some of them because of how they were run developed poor reputations but at the end of the day we're talking about hospitals for people that have mental illnesses and we need to invest in them and we talked about lower taxes but i don't mind paying more to get these people the help that they deserve in places that are better than lying on the street in pandora uh you know causing all sorts of uh carry-on problems and by the way probably costing taxpayers more because of the increase in fire police all of these all of these other things. So uh, for them, I think it's about getting mental hospitals, mental institutions, and a lot of cases reopening institutions that were closed. Uh, for the addiction, I think the same kind of thing. Look, we, we at one point had as a society a consensus that it was not reasonable to be shooting up heroin on the streets. Like that was not something that should be tolerated by society. Um, and I don't think it should be tolerated. Now, you don't treat those people like your common criminal. But I think you say, look, you've got a problem, but the government and the people of British Columbia want to help you. And this is what this is the program that we're going to offer you to get back and clean up. So I think that's what needs to be done. Um, and look, I just think, again, to go back to the scale of the problem, we got five million people, 1700 overdosed last year, which begs the question. I mean, how many addicts do we have in British Columbia? Do we have 50,000 people, 70,000 people that are addicted to heroin right now? And it's, 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 it's crazy. It is a shocking number. Um, and I think it's, it needs to be taken seriously. And, uh, but it cannot, this, this, this handing out free heroin, like it's candy. I mean, it's, it's, it's like some perverse version of, uh, of the Halloween that kills you. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I think, uh, it's time for a different approach, not uh, more of the same. Okay. When it comes to um, illicit drug use from users, so these people who are being given, um, they're either buying it or being given this heroin and other drugs, do you think those people should be criminalized? Should they be arrested? Should they have their drugs taken away from them? Should they be um, prosecuted, the users themselves? The legal mechanism is 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 one that needs to change. They definitely should not be treated like common criminals. Okay. 
However, but you're, I think the question you're getting, should the state force them into man, a kind of mandatory rehab? No, I'm that's not what I'm asking, but okay. that's a good question. Okay. I, that is more of what, like, cause we, we have this, we got to, to me, when I think of business and I think of politics, I always try to look outside the box. You know, we've been painted sometimes into these boxes of you're only allowed choice A and choice B. You're only allowed to be a criminal where you put them in jail or we have to give them free heroin on the streets. Well, I say that's, a, I think that's a false choice. I think there's another option where we can say, in the same way, by the way, that you can put, you know, people that have mental illness, uh, they can be, they, they wouldn't just leave them there. The, the real, me, real harsh mental illness, you know, you can be the government steps in. You have a judge that says this person uh, can no longer take care of themselves or whatever, and they have to be put to a mental hospital. And everyone agrees that makes that makes sense for, for everybody. I think if somebody is addicted to heroin to a point where they can't stop using, they can't function, you see them stumbling around. They've turned into this army of zombies throughout Vancouver, Victoria, and other cities, I might add, I think it's fair to say this individual needs help. You cannot be a productive member of society or a functioning member of society uh, addicted to heroin. Um, and you're, you're going to become a, th a threat to yourself, most importantly, but also potentially others or, or, or a weight on the system. And we're going to help you uh, get clean. But it's, you know, you're just doing heroin in the street there. So you've, you don't have a choice in this matter where this is where you're going. So it's not, it's not prison. I'm guessing you'd have to le use the legal system some capacity because there's, there's rights and everything. I'm guessing <laughs> yeah, that the easiest, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing the easiest way to do this is, is, you know, you might say remain criminalized, but you're not going to jail. You're going to rehab. And these aren't, so you're not treated like a right. criminal. Okay. You're treated by someone that needs What them. about the next level up? The, the common drug pusher. The, the guy who's walking around with a bag of methamphetamine or, you know, whatever he's got in his pocket, do you, do you prosecute those people? For me, 100%. I mean, I think it's a supply demand issue, like, like almost everything. And I think the focus is on, I think if the focus is just on supply, which it seems like it's been, it's a, it's a, it's a fool's game. Like there, you just, there's money to be made. People are going to find a way, but um, yeah, I think you have to keep, especially, I mean, some of these people, that are bringing in drugs from China laced with fentanyl. I mean, they're basically murdering people uh, at that point when you talk about about the importers. So, um, yeah, I think that. But I think you can't. I think that's a that's a fool's game if you're not also dealing with the demand side and getting people off the drugs. Uh, I, and I think that's actually the more important side of things. You get the fastest okay. way to get rid of the dealers is to get rid of the drug users. Right. Okay. Good point. On the other spectrum of healthcare, I want to talk for a moment about private versus public system. What are your thoughts on the argument that patients have the right to pay for private care if the public healthcare system is too slow? I'm going to use an example is can be surgery. I don't know if you're familiar with it, with Dr. Brian Day and the challenge that they're having right now or that they're challenging the BC Supreme Court, possibly going to the uh, Canadian Supreme Court over their ability to provide medical services to British Columbians and Canadians for that matter, who aren't getting it through the public health care system. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that this, you know, allowing private delivery of services for people that want to pay for it, you know, it's a, such a radical idea that it's practiced in, in countries, radical countries like Norway and Germany and Denmark and France. Um, look, it's, it's, we're one of the only countries in the world that doesn't allow this. Uh, the left and the NDP just tries to compare everything that's not this 100% public system in the United States, which is not true. That's another one of these false choices. There are lots of systems in Europe that have way better outcomes for much 
last for a much lower cost uh, than we have here in British Columbia. So what I always say with everything, whether it's education, whether it's with ICBC, the more choice, the more competition, the better. Unleash those forces of, of the private sector, of capitalism that have made everything else in society so much better. And let's try to apply as much of that as possible to healthcare, while, of course, guaranteeing universal access to service. Um, it, that, that should that is not debatable for me that you have to have that. But as far as who's delivering those services and how, uh, 100% open to it. And um, so I think that's, that's what it has to all, all be about. Okay. Good. Now we're going to jump to environment and infrastructure. The BC Liberals significantly increased the rate of old growth logging in BC's interior during their time in government. Obviously, we've had this Ferry Creek protests and activity going on in, in the press recently. And I think you maybe even covered some of this. It's a topic you're probably familiar with. Yep. Okay. Where do you stand on the protection of old growth trees? Well, first of all, Andrew, you're obviously from Port Alberni, so I'm sure you're well familiar with the the importance of the forestry industry uh, in British Columbia. What I see happening right now with the old growth debate is the same kind of thing that happened with oil and pipelines for the past 10 years. You have activist groups that are running out of pipelines to block. They're looking for another issue to raise their funds. And the misinformation, disinformation campaign is wrapping up all over again. The forest industry is the most important industry to this province. It employs tens of thousands of people. It is the industry that built this province. Um, it is one of the, it is the most important industry to many First Nation groups uh, all over British Columbia. And here's the truth about old growth. Uh, there's 13 million hectares of old growth, quote unquote, old growth left in British Columbia, the vast majority of which are already protected in parks and reserves. So this claims that we're logging the last old growths are not true. To put that 13 million in perspective, 200,000 hectares are logged each year. The vast majority of which is an old growth is actually is actually second growth. Uh, I know. And sorry, I how many hectares are protected? What did 13 you million? 13 million. Uh, 13, no, 13 million hectares of old growth across the province. Are of protected that, right now. That's how much exists. The vast, oh, exists. the majority of that is, is protected. Okay. I don't know if the exact numbers, okay. uh, maybe six That's million, how many hectares like of, okay, 13 that's how million. Many, just to put that in perspective, 200,000 are logged, 200,000 is logged every year, but not all of that is old growth. Probably maybe about 50%. On the island, it's 50%. Uh, 50% old growth, 50% second or third growth, because we're actually logging third growth now. Interior and the whole province as a whole, I'm not sure of that exact old growth, second growth uh, breakdown. The other thing, old growth is not a, they have whipped up, they're always using the biggest of the big. The protesters, they're hugging the trees, they're showcasing these really cool trees, many near Port Alberni, for example. Uh, the truth is, most old growth trees are not large, they're not impressive. Many are dilapidated, many are dying, as, as trees all do, and many are in areas that are actually would never be logged because they're not even economically viable to do so. Um, the idea that all old, old growth trees are big trees is not true. It is com old tree. There's 400, 500 year old trees. Some of the trees that we can see just out, uh, outside the window here are some of the oldest trees in British Columbia. They're not large and impressive necessarily. On the other hand, there's some trees in high growth areas that are not even old growth that wouldn't be classified. They're only 200 years old. That are some of the largest trees in British Columbia. So we have to separate those two things. And the, the point for me is that the forest industry, it's amazing it's under attack because this is the the quintessential renewable, sustainable 
industry. All these trees will go back to replanted. As I mentioned, we're actually harvesting, not planting, harvesting third growth trees now. And it's an it's a it's a it's a product wood that we build our homes that we that we write down our pulp mills. Um, it's an essential it's an essential good that we all need. We have the best forestry management practices in Canada, at, sorry in the world. And uh, as long as the world needs these different products, as far as I'm concerned, better in Canada, better in BC than the United States, and certainly better than some countries like Indonesia and Brazil that don't have the environmental standards that we have. Okay. Okay, so talking about environmental standards and talking about the environment, I'm going to switch gears to climate change. What would your climate leadership look like under a position as being the head of the BC Liberal, BC Liberal Party? So three things that I'll say on this. Number one is uh, we're not going to solve, solve climate change by taxing British Columbians into taking the bus, which seems to be the current approach with the ever-increasing carbon tax. And I mean, gas prices here that are uh, hovering around $1.70 that are for sure on their way to $2. Uh, so that would be my first point. My second point is that the reality is, whether people like it or not, that fossil fuels are going to be the the main driver or a primary driver of energy production globally for decades to come um and until that ends as much of those hydrocarbons those fossil fuels from my opinion should come from canada why should we be letting why should saudi arabia or or venezuela or places that don't respect human rights uh, be producing the world's oil as long as the world needs and demands that oil as much of it in my opinion should come from canada and in the case of British Columbia, you could say that uh, about natural gas as well. Third thing, when it comes to climate change, we're talking global CO2 emissions. That's what matters, global CO2 emissions. So the question is, what can British Columbia do that would most dramatically affect global CO2 emissions in a positive way? And the answer, as counterintuitive as it might be to some people, is to develop and export as much of our natural gas as possible. 26% of the global energy production is or the global energy supply is coal-fired plants right now 26 percent if we can export that natural gas to places like japan places like south korea places like china and india that are still building coal-fired plants by the way we can lower global emissions significantly while also powering our economy creating jobs oh and by the way uh, helping to fund some of these new technological innovation that at the end of the day is the only way we're ever switching off of hydro hydrocarbons. We're not going to get there by building windmills and bike lanes. We need to have technical and in technological innovation, things like carbon capture, things like carbon scrubbing, things like nuclear fusion, these kind of things that I am confident will be so be solved in, in the decades to come. So that's what I think the solution is. It's counterintuitive. It might not be what some people like to hear, but I think when you look at the look at the solution, uh, that's actually uh, what it is. Well, it seems to fit the analogy that I remember learning in my very first course I took at Camosun College, the one that I loved the most, which was environment, environmental geography. It was like at the early days, it was 1993, so the concept of even recycling was so new. But there was a common phrase that was used, which was think globally, act locally. And it sounds like what you're, to summarize what you're saying, Aaron, is if we really want to target uh, global CO2 emission and think globally, we know that our neighbors across the pond in China and Japan and Korea are burning coal that's far worse than burning natural gas. So instead of focusing on how we're burning our own 
uh, fossil fuels here in Canada. Let's provide them with an alternative to coal that's far better, and in return, also generating a huge industry for us. Is that what you're saying? That's 100% what I'm saying, and I'd also add to it is that uh, you know some people might like it, but I'll tell you another thing that does nothing for climate change, and that is virtue signaling. And that's what I see a lot of on this policy now. It's about politicians trying to look good and feel good. Uh, let's look at this from for what it is. It's a scientific issue. If the issue is determined to be CO2 emissions, it's definitely global. The world doesn't care where, where it's coming from. Uh, coal is the, you know, the, the main contributor to that. Let's switch them to natural gas. That's a solution that's not hypothetical. We have that now. We can do that now. We can build LNG and get it over there. Oh, by the way, there's other countries with natural gas, but almost none of it is electrified like ours is. So we're actually low emission natural gas. It's the cleanest natural gas in the world. That's a good point. Speaking of electrified natural gas and electricity, Site C Dam has been controversial from the, the beginning. Current estimates are now that it's going to cost us $16 billion to complete this project. It was originally pegged at being about $11 billion and is now delayed till 2025. If you did run for this leadership uh, campaign and if you did become the leader of the BC Liberal Party next year, how would you start to target, how, how would you address Site C Dam today? Well, we're definitely past the point of no return. Okay. Uh, I think it needs to be audited to figure out how this possibly happened. It's, it goes back to my original thesis of why you want government to be as small as possible, because it seems anything they touch turns into a complete boondoggle. Um, this is seems to be no different. Uh, now, hydropower in general, um, look, in a world that's looking for clean, renewable sources of energy, hydropower isn't without its drawbacks, but it certainly um, works certainly blessed with tremendous amounts of it. You see some of the incredible uh, vision that people like WAC Bennett have in providing British Columbia with the cheap, clean energy that it has today. So I'm, I am a big supporter of hydropower. This obviously has not been managed uh, very effectively, which is maybe not that surprising. Um, but yeah, it's, it's past the point of no return. We should audit it, find out, to try to prevent that from happening again. And look, I wouldn't be surprised if... Um, you know, we're going to need as, as more things electrify, we're probably going to need more sources of energy in the future as well. So uh, if we do need more hydro dams in the future, we need to make sure that we're not uh, that we're building them efficiently as possible and getting taxpayers or maybe in this case, rate payers a good return on their investment. So are you in favor of the um, public private partnership type approach of, of building a project like this? Or are you in favor of uh, make just contracting out completely to a private enterprise? Uh, how would you approach that? I mean, I think the whole process that went through with Site C Dam is something that needs to be reviewed after an audit. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I know the exact reason why the project is 50% over budget so far. Probably, I'm sure it'll be even more under over budget. But um, yeah, it needs to be reviewed, and we need to find a way to have, deliver better value for taxpayers. One thing I'm not sure if you you know about, but there were these run of river projects that BC Hydro did. That the, another big mistake by the BC Liberals when they were in power. Um, that's going to cost, I believe, rate pairs, I believe it's $20 billion over the next 40 years, which is dramatic. And that was government intervening in BC Hydro and trying to get them to run all of these small little hydro dams in different places because they thought it was clean or help different communities. Turns out we didn't even need the power and they're completely unreliable and the cost per kilowatt hour is exorbitant. We would never be able to sell that power for anything that was remotely uh, profitable. And that's the kind of, again, government micromanaging uh, in things that I think needs to stop. Oh, okay. Uh, 
it, this is more about infrastructure and the environment, but I want to talk about Massey Tunnel. It was opened in 1959. Um, it's 62 years old this year, and it needs to be updated. Now, the BC Liberal Party has taken the position year after year that they want a tunnel, uh, that they want a bridge, right? Yeah, the BC Liberals want a bridge. Mm -hmm. The BC NDP want a tunnel. And so far, we have nothing. If you were premier of this province today, would you make it a bridge? Would you make it a tunnel? Or would you just make this another election promise? Well, I think, I mean, I, I like the bridge. I think the difference between the bridge and the tunnel was, like at the end of the day, it's just an artery of transportation. But I think the bridge had more lanes than the proposed tunnel. So I think the bridge had more capacity. Um, Look, I think I think either or whatever can deliver the best value to taxpayers. For me, I believe that was a bridge, but we have to get it like this needed to be built 20 years ago. And by the way, that's not just that. I just drove out to Abbotsford the other day. What an embarrassment in this province that there's two lanes on each side uh, on the way to Abbotsford where there's all this. It clearly should be uh, at least three lanes on either side um, out to Chilliwack. And you see that over and over again with infrastructure uh, in this province. The BC Liberals did a lot of good things on the infrastructure file, but um, this is another project that the NDP has just kicked down the road. Instead, where's that money going? It's going to inflate the, the public service who they think are, you know, are people that are going to vote for them. Instead of delivering on real tangible items like infrastructure uh, that will benefit everybody and benefit the economy. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it should have been replaced 20 years ago. And by the way, there's probably 10 other infrastructure projects that should have been replaced uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So, um, yeah, 100% build the bridge get it over with okay we're talking about pipelines and then we're gonna get a cannabis okay. and then we're gonna give you a chance to wrap this up with your plug on who you are and your potential Sounds campaign. good we have a pipeline the tmx pipeline that most people in the province are uh i'm gonna redo that one we have a pipeline the tmx pipeline that many people in the province are against during the last election andrew wilkinson former leader of the BC Liberal Party, said that he would end the NDP's obstruction program for the Trans Mountain Pipeline and take the position that permitted projects should not be blocked by protesters. Question, do British Columbians have the right to protest the decision largely made in Ottawa? Well, they have a right to protest peacefully. They do not have a right to obstruct. A, they don't have a right to break the law. They don't have a right, a right to obstruct a project uh, that's been approved by a federal government or a court. Um, look, you, you touch on a bigger issue, which is a complete breakdown, the uh, embarrassing breakdown in some cases of the rule of law. You see it with the 10 cities. You see it with the city councilor handing out crystal meth. You see it with the illegal blockade on the coastal gasoline pipeline that went on for almost four months. You saw it with Ferry Creek where it took months uh, for the rule of law to be reestablished and the government capitulate anyways. And uh, you see it, I mean, how many times, I, I live over in Victoria, but how many times I've seen the Burrard Bridge blockaded or the Port of Vancouver blockaded? I mean, it's ridiculous. We, we, live, in a, we live in a democracy. We don't live in a, in, a, in a banana republic. We have elections. People are allowed to be activists, campaign for things. I mean, I'm somebody that's advocated on issues my entire life. Uh, but we have elections and decisions are made. And people are allowed to legally protest those decisions and use all of their constitutional rights. But that does not include infringing on the rights of other people. It does not include blocking highways, blocking rail lines, or blocking the construction of a pipeline that's been decided by a, 
a legally, a democratically elected uh, government and legally upheld by the courts in the case of TMX. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's, um, and every time you give in to these people, you give them an inch, they take a mile. It happens over and over again. The TMX pipeline, uh, again, I'm sure the government's going to end up losing money on it, which is incredible. It's been delayed over and over and over again. And I think it's time we get on with it. We had, we had an election, we decided it. And, um, you know, we're losing billions of dollars, uh, you know, every, every week, every month, because uh, we can't get our, our oil to the markets that they need to get to. And we can't get, by the way, refined product here to British Columbia, which is one of the reasons why you see gas prices at $1.70 a liter. Right. Good point. So let's say we did get it built. Let's say you're the premier of British Columbia. The federal liberals have projected that there'll be about $500 million a year uh, of expanded pipeline coming through those pipes and um, creating more revenue for our nation. Mm -hmm. What would you do to ensure that BC got its fair share of the revenue being generated from that pipeline expansion? Well, it's a bit of, well, the federal government bought the pipeline using taxpayer money. Um, I imagine that, I mean, at this point, if we could get that money back and they could sell it back to a private sector consortium, ideally with some First Nations in there, that would, that would be good for me. I don't want to be in the, I don't want the government to be in the business of, of building pipelines or operating pipelines. I think that it, that is not, it doesn't make any sense to me. Obviously, it's providing uh, a lot of jobs here in British Columbia right now. It's a massive construction project, billion dollar project. But also at the end of the day, let's be honest, this is a Canadian project. This is a national unity project. project. Uh, over, year, over the years and decades, while we got the construction of it, those are mainly going to be jobs that are in, in Alberta. Um, export, developing and exporting this country's most important resource. And I do think another thing that is really important to me is healing some of the wounds that this NDP government has created between the truly four great Western provinces of Confederation. And um, so I think that's something to be taken into, into consideration. That was a big divide there for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, Aaron, we're going to jump to cannabis. Mm -hmm. Cannabis became legal in 2018. The province has um, taken over now the sort of regulation and policing of cannabis in British Columbia. Should the province regulate the price of cannabis and business licenses that operators have to adhere to? So, for example, you talked earlier about municipal governments here in British Columbia. If I'm a cannabis retail cannabis operator, I want to set up shop in Kamloops. I pay $5,000 a year to, to the city to have my business license. If I want to set up in Vancouver, I pay over $33,000 a year. Starting off with the regulations and running a legal cannabis operation in British Columbia, what's your position? So the first thing I'll say, I've, I mean, I have this disclaimer, disclaimer a couple of times, but this is early days. We don't have an official campaign yet. I'm also not af afraid to say that this is not an issue I've talked about or looked into deeply. Now, that being said, there's, I still think, you know, you have principles and you have, you have guiding principles that guide you on, on every single issue. Um, I'm not going to be the, I, I think some of the expected windfall uh, that people thought was coming from this was, uh, didn't material, materialize, but Look, I'm not going to be the the um, the pro can the, the cannabis cheerleading politician. That's not uh, you know I don't, I don't think it's it's appropriate or or it should be a big thing of government to be going around promoting it. But at this at the same time, it is legal. This has happened, and uh, we've still got a very active black market here, which helps nobody. And um, so I think whether it's reducing fees to make sure that black market 
is is eliminated. Stepping up enforcement where it needs to be stepped up. Um, I'm open to all those different things. But again, big disclaimer, early days setting things up, not an issue that I've dived deep into. But again, it doesn't surprise me that even when it comes to selling weed, basically the government has messed things up. And uh, again, ties especially here in BC, especially here in BC. So, yeah, you think you could find some people with some experience. But um, so, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I look at that issue. But it's not an issue that I've that I've uh, dived deep into. Um, I'm a firm believer that a lot of the gang activity and shootings we've been seeing is partly being driven by the economics of the black market cannabis business, because it's estimated that only about 30% of cannabis being consumed in British Columbia is being consumed by the legal distributors. Mm -hmm. And the other 70% is still coming from the illegal market, which is basically going unchecked now because the police have zero incentive to enforce. In fact, they don't even in many cases have the um, resources to do it. It's been passed on to these uh, community led services, something, something. Um, I forget what it was. Could you guys remember the call? The name of it? Com community safety units, CSUs. Um, I had a conversation with Minister Farnworth about this recently, and um, you know, they we talked about going from education to enforcement. Um, I believe the gang problem in Canada, in British Columbia, is going to get worse if we don't stamp it out because organized criminal activity is like a cancer in society, and just like a regular cancer. If you don't attack it early and quickly and aggressively, it's just going to infect the entire society. That's my view. What's your view on that? Well, I think, well, first of all, organized crime is obviously a big issue. We've seen large increases in crime. Um, I don't have the data in front of me of what's driving that, how much of it's connected to uh, the illegal uh, pot trade, how much of it is is this fentanyl stuff coming from, from China, the triads. You've seen lots of evidence there the different gangs operating in British Columbia, United Nations, all these all these different actors. So I, I'm not sure the, the breakdown, but I mean I mean we could we could jump into all sorts of different things. But part of it again, yeah, you gotta it's 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 been legalized now. We're in this situation. They're honestly yeah, if the government was doing its job properly, the black market should have no reason to exist. Um, so I think that that needs to be dealt with. And organized crime more more broadly, I think it needs to be made a priority. But that would probably help is to your point, um, we're able to get police focusing on things uh, that they need to focus on, which is organized crime, instead of basically becoming, you know, first responders for for mental health and addiction uh, incidents. Uh, so I think that that is that is part of the issue, and certainly not defunding the police. So you're not a fan of defund police? No, I think that is it is one of the uh, well, that's a whole nother conversation. But yeah, suffice to say that it was an, a yes no the, question. Do you support defund the police? I, yes I, no? We need to refund the police, I think, okay. is, a, is a better better slogan. Okay, uh, we got a couple minutes left. Aaron, you're not officially a candidate running for the BC Liberal Party yet, but you may be. So what do you want to tell listeners to this uh, podcast who might be listening to this, who might be listening to this? Maybe you don't run, and then it doesn't matter what you're about to say, but let's say you are running. What do you want them to hear from you? What do they want? What do you want them to know? I think it's just my political philosophy and, and how I look at things. At the end of the day, I'm for common sense and respect of taxpayer dollars. To me, that's smaller government, that's less wasteful government, and a government that empowers rather than lords over the individual. 
I think, uh, and I think this manifests in all sorts of different ways. I think it's time for bold new ideas, as I mentioned previously. I think we need to be developing our resources and getting them to the markets that they need to get to. And of course, there's a whole host of other issues, whether it's getting the cost of living under control, whether it's defending free speech on university campuses, upholding our constitutional rights, uh, respecting our history, and not apologizing for everything under the sun. And most importantly, I'll come back to that, that point I made initially, which is to stop uh, as a BC Liberal, as a right-leaning party, as a party that I th would like to think would stand for common sense, is to stop capitulating on every single social, cultural, and economic issue and uh, to start putting the priorities of, of hardworking, law-abiding taxpayers first again in British Columbia. Okay, well said. If people wanted to get involved, if you just do decide by the time this goes to, to, to publish or afterwards, what would you tell people to do? How, do you want, how would you like people to get involved in your campaign should you launch one? Well, to find out more about me, people can go to AaronGunn.ca. You can watch my videos. You can find out what I'm all about. Uh, if this podcast hasn't already done done that for you, you can uh, check me out on social. Uh, and if you want to go to AaronGunn.ca slash leadership, uh, you can also sign up to, to stay informed, pledge your vote if you already know that that uh, you'd like me to run. And that'll give me you know some data that, that and an indication that there's enough people out there that want to see new ideas, that want to think outside the box and are ready to try something new. So that's the process that we're in right now. As you pointed out, uh, there's a couple other things I have to finish up uh, in life before officially announcing I'm about to release my second season of Politics Explained, which is a, a, a documentary show. And, um, so keep an eye out for that. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just out there every day trying to, trying to speak common sense to, to everyday British Columbians. Well, it's been great having you on the show, Aaron, um, whether you do run or you don't, I wish the best of luck. You've been a great co a host. Uh, I'm, I'm the host. You've been a great guest. I've been a great host. Thanks for coming. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on to coastal front. And if you do run yeah. best of luck, and I look forward to having you back here one way or another. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's great to, uh, always great to chat with another island boy. <laughs> Keep your head up. Thanks, Aaron.